This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Paul Wallace. He was on the show before to talk about his book, Stars Beneath Us, and he teaches physics and astronomy at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia. He holds a Ph.D. in experimental nuclear physics from Duke University and a Master's of Divinity from Candler School of Theology in Atlanta. He also teaches theology at Candler and at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. Paul Wallace, welcome back to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. Pleasure to be here. So as a way of getting into this conversation about your new book, Love and Quasars, I'd like for you to please read a little portion of it on page 37. Sure thing. Two roads is the name of the section. Two roads diverge before us. Down the first, we are freaks, moral creatures coughed up by an amoral universe, saddled by evolution with this heavy load, this unshakable sense of value, our obsession with meaning, doomed to live out our short and difficult and messy lives in a cosmos that doesn't care about us or our choices. Better to be an amoeba or cat or maple tree, unburdened by such troubles. We may endure a while. We may colonize the solar system or even the Milky Way, but all things will eventually wind down in the face of endless cold and infinite time. The universe will not be tamed. It will swallow us. Down the second road, our morality and our sense of values reveal something as actual and fundamental as energy, time, space, and light. We belong in the universe no less than electrons and quasars, and we simply cannot stop living our lives as if love is real and as if it matters ultimately. So maybe it is real and does matter ultimately. We are not freaks. Instead, we express a core cosmic reality when, guided by love and justice, we make even the tiniest of choices. We are drawn by love toward a world we can't see but occasionally glimpse whenever an Oscar Schindler or a Rosa Parks or a James Harrison shows up, a world envisioned and described by Martin Luther King, a world Jesus called the kingdom of God. I walk the second road out of a desire for integrity, which means wholeness. It means to be of one mind, consistent in thought and action. I cannot live as if my choices and actions matter while believing or even suspecting that they do not. We must line up our beliefs about the world with our experience of the world and our deeds in it. Like good scientists who wish to remain connected to reality, we must adjust our theory to the data. And that's Paul Wallace reading from his recent book, Love and Quasars, An Astrophysicist Reconciles Faith and Science. There's so much in that brief section that you read that I want to dig into. First of all, the whole notion that we have 
sort of before us this binary way of looking at the world. And I think that a lot of my listeners are going to be very familiar with that. We're used to thinking that science is on one side and it simply is the cold, hard facts. And then faith is on the other side and it's sort of this touchy, feely, very emotional and not able to be reconciled with science and the facts. And what I love about your book, Love and Quasars, is that you are trying to undo that binary and think about it in a different way. So first of all, let's start with kind of what was it that drew you to want as a trained scientist and as a person of faith to try and dive into that age-old problem of the binary between science and faith? Well, it has, there's two parts to it. One is that I grew up in a uh, household that took both science and faith quite seriously. My dad was a professor at Georgia Tech, but we also darkened the doors of our uh, church every single time it was open. So both of these ideas about science and faith were very important to me from my earliest years. And I've been thinking about it ever since I was able to think about it, I believe. The second thing, the thing that actually inspired this book was a conversation I had with a student. I was walking out of a uh, class I was teaching about a year or so ago, a couple, maybe a couple years ago now, and the student found out that I'm a pastor as well as a physics professor. And uh, she was stunned. She sort of stopped in the middle of the hall and stared at me, and you could almost, you know, uh, see the question mark floating over her head. And she asked me the question. She said, how does that work? And this book is really a direct response to that question of how I make those two things that, like you say, we normally keep separate, sort of how I bring them together. And that's sort of a—it's really as simply written as I, as I know how to do it. Well, and one of the things, and this was true also of your previous book, Stars Beneath Us, which we discussed a couple of seasons ago, but in both cases, you mix very astute and, as you say, clear reflections on the core of this problem with stories from your own life and pieces that are woven in from your past and your own journey as a person of faith and as a person studying science. And one of the earliest points that you talk about in the book in Love and Quasars is this moment when you're driving across the Mississippi River and you see the dappling of sunlight at dusk and you're a, you're a child and you make a comment in the car and you say, that is the glory of God. And you say it out loud and this becomes something that your father latches onto, and it becomes a story that gets told again and again in your family. Right. How did that make right. you feel when that moment when you sort of made that statement? First of all, what did you mean in that moment? And then how did it begin to make you feel when that moment got picked up as something that was returned to again and again <laughs> by your father? Well, the moment itself, I think, was a very simple thing. I think that I saw that, and I had a sense of God's presence in the world. Um, I was probably eight years old, something like that, and I had a sense of God's presence in the world, and it just reminded me of that presence, and so I said, that's what that is. That is the glory of God. It's a beautiful sunset. We were driving west. The sun was setting in front of us, and, you know, there were clouds, but there were rays coming through the clouds. It, it, it's what our family now calls a Jesus cloud, when you can see the see the rays, you know, coming out from around the clouds. And uh, so I, it was a very simple statement that I made. But later on, when my dad kept repeating the story, it made me feel embarrassed. I felt like he was trying to make—he would laugh. He thought it was lovely. At the time, he thought it was lovely. He laughed out loud, but then he held on to the story and kept telling it to people. And as I grew up, I began to feel embarrassed by it because I felt like it was a very childish, simple thing to say. And I was trying to grow up here, and I felt like he—I felt like—almost like he was calling me childish when he would tell the story and laugh. 
So that's, it embarrassed me that I would be so simple. You know, I, I'm talking about when I was like 15 right. know, or 18. One of the things that you point out in the book is that if your father had really had a clarity that this was embarrassing you, he would have stopped immediately. So his intention wasn't to tease you. He was intending something else, but you took it as a tease. Is that correct? I, I took it as a tease. He was, he, yes, he was intending it as something. He, he, as I say in the book, I think that he saw me clearly in that moment. I think it was a very uncalculated, very true, very pure thing to say. And when I said it, my mind and my heart and my experience and my words were all unified, and they had integrity. Like I said in that passage, I had integrity in that moment. And I think that's what he loved about it, because it was a real—he could really see me in that moment. Because the truth is, I've been looking for God in creation ever since, ever since I, that moment. And so he really—I think it was a true statement about who I am, and I think that's why he loved it. Well, and you mentioned that you've been looking for God in creation ever since, and for listeners that may be unfamiliar with your background, let's talk a little bit about the academic and scientific training that you've had. So tell us a little bit about what you have studied over the years. Well, in, when I was uh, in college, I, I was about two breaths away from being an English major. Then I took physics, and that's all it took, because taking physics was, it was like putting on a a shoe that was brand new but felt old and comfortable. It just really fit uh, me well. And so I went into physics, and I got a Ph.D. at Duke in nuclear physics. And um, when I left Duke, I uh, started doing research in astrophysics instead. There were some connecting points between my nuclear physics work and my astrophysics work, but I really did change orientations after graduate school and began to do astrophysics. And, and I did that for about 15 years. Well, and there's, there's a point in the book, Love and Quasars, where you talk about going to a science center there in Atlanta and having a very formative moment in the planetarium, and that that oh, set, right. sets off this love of the stars and, and studying them. So tell us a little bit about that moment. Sure. That, that was when I was probably in second or third grade, and uh, we visited a place called Fernbank Science Center, which is actually directly across the street from where my daughter now goes to school. But I was a young child, uh, probably 10 years old, and we went there, and um, we saw, went to the planetarium, and it, it was magical to me to, to sit there and look at the night sky. Then they brought out, you know, the equatorial lines, the ecliptic, you know, projected these grid lines up onto the dome with all the constellations, you know, all the all the figures up there and all the stories. And that blending of story and number, I think, was what really resonated with me and pushed me towards science, really, ultimately. And now let me ask you a little bit about the faith side. So in addition to having a Ph.D. in physics, you also have a degree, a Master's of Divinity degree from a divinity school. So talk to us a little bit about what it was that led you down that path. Well, I, uh, you know, ever since I was uh, in college, I wanted to be a professor because I had professors who seemed like they were sort of semi-crazy, but they had respectable jobs at the same time. So I thought, you know, that's for me. So there's a pretty well worn path to becoming a professor. There's certain flaming hoops you have to jump through. I did all that, and I received tenure, and I was, uh, when I when I finally received tenure in the physics department, I was probably in my, I was probably about 37 years old, 36 years old, 36, and I realized I had 30 more years of my working life ahead of me without any clear idea what to do. 
And if I can say a bit more, at any college or university, the senior faculty, there's two, there, there's two species. The first are those who, for whom tenure was, you know, an opening into a brand new world of creativity and research and teaching. And there are also those, the second species, for whom tenure was a, a, a gateway into coasting and complacency. And I felt myself, I felt myself taking that second road towards complacency. And there were also a lot of sort of spiritual aspects and dynamics going on. Seminary was not a new idea, but it was time to change gears. And seminary was all had been lurking in my back in my mind for about a decade by this point. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Paul Wallace about his recent book, Love and Quasars, An Astrophysicist Reconciles Faith and Science. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Paul Wallace about his recent book, Love and Quasars, An Astrophysicist Reconciles Faith and Science. So at one point in your book, Love and Quasars, you tell a story about two ancient thinkers, Copernicus and Tycho Brahe. And yeah. the, the disagreement between Tycho Brahe and C- Copernicus is speaking to the kind of frictions and tensions that you're dealing with throughout the book. But tell us a little bit about what their disagreement was and why it's meaningful to us today. Well, Copernicus, as you know, was not the first to suggest, but the first to make it believable that the Earth went around the sun instead of the other way around. He was, and and, and most listeners will, will know that already. So he was proposing that the sun sat in the middle of the solar system or of the universe, as they saw it at the time, and the Earth went around the sun. Well, this bothered a lot of people, and Tycho was one of them. Tycho had two problems with with Copernicus. The first was that uh, scientific that he had scientific issues with Copernicus, as many scientists did, as many philosophers did at the time. But the second problem that Tycho had was this: one thing that's not too well known about Copernicus's idea is that in order for it to be true, and I can't connect all the dots here. But in order for Copernicus to be right, the stars would necessarily be much further away than anybody ever suspected at the time. There'd be a lot of empty space between Saturn, the highest planet, and the stars. A vast amount of empty space, and it was that empty space that bothered Tycho so much. Tycho thought that there would be no reason for God to make so much empty space. So much so, he was so convinced that God would not make so much empty space that he felt like that objection was sufficient to do away with Copernicus's idea altogether. And so for Tycho, it was self-evident that God would not make a universe with vast amounts of nothingness. And it wasn't just—you you mentioned that this was a, a scientific difficulty that, that Tycho Brahe had, but it also brought up an existential problem for Tycho Brahe, because that amount of nothingness indicates 
what what would that indicate philosophically if there was that much nothingness in the universe? Well, I, I think that for Tycho, it would it would it would I, I think it just challenged his idea of God so much, his idea of God as creator so much. I think it would that he had an idea that God made things, you know, sort of according to what Tycho would think was common sense and you know good taste and good measure, and he felt like that much empty space would just be useless. And so I think that the existential problem Tycho had was that it really challenged, as far as I can tell, reading his words and his principal biographers, is that it was a theological problem. He felt like that it challenged his idea of what God was like. And what I'd like to do now is connect this to another thinker that you engage with in the book, and that's Steven Weinberg, around his book, The First Three Minutes. And Weinberg's notion about how the world came to be and how life on earth came to be comes down to basically an assertion that Weinberg makes that, you know, this process is completely comprehensible and it is completely pointless. You peel out this one phrase, your daddy was a slime mold, is basically what Steven Weinberg comes down to say, and that there is no meaning to be found in the fact that human life exists and has persevered for the last 200,000 years. It's simply an accident of history. And so I'd like to engage that a little bit with you. And first of all, what does Weinberg get right? And then where would you correct Weinberg in his assertions? Okay, uh, I need to correct you. That is P.V. Myers who made that that statement. I'm so sorry. Uh, I talk, it's quite all right. In that section, I talk about two different atheists, more or less together, and so that that's that's quite all right. But yeah, um, your question though about Myers, he basically looks at the universe and thinks that strictly in terms of physical process and sees no meaning, no significance whatsoever to human life, because it's more or less, in his mind, accidental. And so for him, you know, the world has become highly comprehensible. He understands it all. It's completely understandable. But the more, and and this is where it resonates with Weinberg, is is it, it resonates with Weinberg's statement that the more comprehensible the universe is, the more pointless it seems to be. And so, when when we think of, when we think about these learned writers who are asserting, yes, we can know in great detail how we got here, and the more that we know it in that detail, the less that we can say that there's any purpose to our being here. Where would you begin to push against that, and how would you push well, against I w- that? I would say that they're looking through a very particular set of glasses when they say that. I would say that they're looking through glasses that have two features, okay? The first feature of the glasses that they're looking through is that they're like sunglasses, okay? Because sunglasses filter out certain wavelengths of light. There are certain things you simply don't see through sunglasses. Certain wavelengths of light don't make it through. So in one sense, I'm saying that by looking at the world in a strictly scientific way, they're looking at the world and filtering out certain realities. The second aspect of the same set of sunglasses is that not only are they sunglasses, but they are prescription sunglasses, because what those glasses do is not the glasses of science do. Let me be clear. These are some of the, the shades of science not only filter out certain wavelengths, but also sharpen what you can see. So they're like prescription sunglasses. So through the lenses of science, you see physical causes, you see physical mechanisms, you see biological, 
you know, uh, you see organisms within environments, things like this, which are all true and all real, but it's only a certain perspective. But the glasses also help you see those things. The glasses of science also help you see those things with unprecedented clarity. So they're not only they filter out light, but the light they do let through is extremely detailed. So what would you say to the person who is committed to looking through these prescription sunglasses and thinks that that shows them the sharpest and most useful way of describing the world? How would you then make the case that a person needs to add some other lens, a lens of faith, into this process? Or would you describe it in a different way? I, I might describe it in a slightly different way. What I would have to say is that they are – what I would point out as gently as I could is that nobody lives their life as if the scientific description of the world is all there is. And this is really the crux of my book and what I read at the top of the uh, show here. Nobody, nobody, including P.C. Myers, including Steven Weinberg, live their lives as if those lives are meaningless. So what I would say to them is you are living your life as if there are these fundamental rock-solid realities in nature that are important, in, in, in the world that are important. Realities like love and justice. Yet, when you look at the world through your scientific lenses, those things get filtered out. So my point is not necessarily that the Christian faith is the right thing to add, but that some kind of structure that incorporates meaning in a robust way is needed. Something more is needed than science. So I'm, I'm not arguing in the book that the only two options are materialist atheism and Christianity. My argument in the book is that science is consistent with Christianity. And what I love about where you go from there after you make that case in the book is you start talking about, towards the end of the book, Love and Quasars, your own journey kind of back to faith. And you, you report right. that you used to love battling with ardent Christians that wanted to convert you because you didn't, you didn't <laughs> quite look like you were a person who had grown up with a faith. And so one of the things that was really moving to me was you talked about meeting your, your, the woman that eventually became your wife, and she was a person of faith, and she did not try and battle you or argue with you. Instead, she simply accepted you where you were, and she radiated her own identity as a believer. And let's talk about that dynamic for a moment, because I think because we live in a scientific, in a world that is often ruled by a scientific worldview, we have people of faith who believe that they need to basically come into discussions with a kind of macho intellectualism. And let's talk for a moment about the defects of that kind of macho intellectualism for being winsome in the faith, in the process of bringing people to faith. Well, it didn't work for me because I was a college student. Uh, the, the story I tell at the end of the book that I was a college student, and I, I was at the time, I, I don't think I ever disbelieved in God. I think I always believed there was something more out there. I was never really a, a, a hard-boiled atheist, but I was not a Christian in any way. And so I went to a college, and there were some Baptist students at the college, and I spent a lot of my time in the student center, and so they would. I was a nice target for them, and they would come and try to convince me, basically, that I was wrong. And I really loved that, because I like to argue, and it turns out that I won every argument. You know, at least in my own head, it's easy to win. It turns out when you when you're the sole judge, but I really enjoyed that because I felt like I won every argument. And but all that really was, uh, I see it now was it, it was it was just a game. I wasn't really interested. I don't. I think part of me was, but I think I was also just playing a game and not really allowing 
a real relationship to form. That's, and in a lot of ways, that's because it couldn't form. In such a debate, in such a discussion, when a religious believer is trying to forcefully convert somebody who's not a religious believer, that's not a real relationship. You know, that's just a strategy on both players' parts. But what Elizabeth did when I met her is that she was a Christian, but she didn't argue with me. And it's not because she couldn't argue, she just didn't care to. She wanted to get to know me and uh, all my, uh, you know, the sort of the uh, smart-ass persona, the smart-ass component of my persona got shut down. And so I didn't really know how to manage that. And uh, so it was her attention to me, me myself, and not to my, you know, sort of my armor of defense with my arguments and so forth that eventually won me over back to the faith. Well, and what I love about that is how you tie that together in the book Love and Quasars, that love that Elizabeth, your your now wife, showed you, you tie that back to the love that God shows us in the person of Jesus Christ. And I think part of the, the point that a reader would get from that section is that God is not interested in winning an argument with us. God simply wants right. a relationship with us. But we so often right. believe instead that there's some kind of theological points that we need to hit or something, and we miss the relational aspect of this, don't we? Yes, and oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, those kind of discussions can just become about turf defense more than anything else. Well, and so when we're thinking about this relationality and we're bringing this back to the the kind of questions that we began this segment with, part of what really scared Tico Brahe was the notion that all this vast empty space indicated a great distance from heaven and from God. And and I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but now no, that, that's actually well well put, yeah. Well, but but now that we now that we know that those distances are exactly what what can be measured and that they are the reality. How then would would we respond then to someone like Tico who has this deep desire for connection and is fearful that the distances make connection impossible? How do we bring reassurance to someone who has that kind of fear? Wow, that's a good question. And I think, as I argue in the last chapter, that love is the only answer. And to not engage necessarily... I mean, I think you need to... When I talk to folks who are creationists, and I think that there's a similarity here between Tico and some creationists that I have spoken to and that have, you know, have sort of large public platforms. There seems to be a fear of where God would be in such a cosmos as the one we live in. And so they try to force another cosmos on us, one in which they can see their God acting clearly and in simple ways. But the, the response to a creationist is twofold. One is that you have to know the arguments, and you have to know your stuff, and you have to be secure in your own position. But the second thing, and this is where my divinity training comes in hand, the second and most important thing about engaging with a creationist, or like a Tico Brahe, is to love them. And to, um, to it's a pastoral question, okay, more than an intellectual one. You have to let your own defenses drop enough to where you can see the person in front of you and become interested in them, because people are fascinating, whether they agree with you or not. And I think if you can get to that point with a Tico or with a creationist, you know, or with a hard-boiled materialist, an atheist, if you can get to that point and treat the questions themselves as secondary to the revelation of God that's standing right in front of you, the human being, then you can make progress. And that's how Elizabeth made progress with me, by regarding me not as, as somebody to argue with, but as somebody to love. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Paul Wallace, and we're discussing his recent book, Love and Quasars, An Astrophysicist Reconciles Faith and Science. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest today is Paul Wallace. He teaches at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia. He holds degrees in nuclear physics from Duke University and a Master's of Divinity from Candler School of Theology in Atlanta. We're discussing his recent book, Love and Quasars, An Astrophysicist Reconciles Faith and Science. Well, I'm going to ask you a question about a recent current event, and I recognize that you are not an expert in the law, but I'd like to use it as a jumping-off point because it speaks to, to the heart of what you're dealing with in Love and Quasars. And uh, what I'm going to reference is the recent law passed in Ohio, the Ohio Student Religious Liberties Act of 2019, and it requires schools to give student religious groups the same access to school facilities for meetings and events as secular religious groups. It lifts bans limiting student expression of religion at lunch and non-instructional periods. But most importantly for our discussion, it abolishes any restrictions on students from engaging in religious expression in completion of homework, artwork, or other assignments. In other words, to paraphrase, students, if this law passes, would be allowed to cite their religious beliefs in science classes as answers to questions, and they, they they could not be held accountable for that or penalized for that. And I'm just interested, first of all, as a person who educates both in the realm of science and in the realm of religion, is this sort of law, the Ohio Student Religious Liberties Act, the right direction? Or if it's not, how would you suggest a correction? Wow. You know, I was kind of for it until you got to the end. (laughs) Until you got to the end. I mean, I think that religious expression uh, should be allowed to flourish, I believe. That being said, my two concerns are, number one, that the majority religion will beat over the head all the minority religions, which is certainly what would happen. I'm afraid, if history is any, you know, evidence. And the second thing is that what you said about the end, about allowing creationism to be an argument within a science classroom, here's what I think about that. I think uh, that it should be allowed. I think it could be allowed, but I think that there needs to be some, there needs to be a scientific response to it. In other words, if the student is going to say something like the Earth was 6,000 years old, then the student would have to make a scientific argument explaining why all the evidence that we have in favor of an old Earth is false. And what I think the law is intended to do is that the student could simply point to Genesis 1-1 and say, here's my evidence. And why, right, why, would, right. that, why would that be an, an inappropriate way of then answering that question? I guess that's what I want to get to. Okay, it'd be inappropriate in a science classroom because that's not science. You have to use scientific arguments. And I... To, to make a case. Absolutely. And I, I think that, that and I, I'm just going to play devil's advocate for one moment more. I, sure, think, sure. I think that one of the things that a person who would advocate for a law like this would say would be, well, it may not be science, but it's truth. And science is all about doubting the truth and, and trying to poke holes in the truth. But here, we don't have to poke holes. We simply have revealed truth, and that should be enough. 
the earth is 6,000 years old, and the answer is there, and they sort of dust their hands off, and they, and they go on. And for me, as, a, as a, a layperson, the danger of a law like this is that if you're going to drive on a bridge in Ohio, and you believe that the bridge will stay up simply because the spirits and your religion says that it will versus the engineering and the science, to me, that begins to have real-world consequences. And I wonder, you know, how can we begin to think about engaging people for whom the real-world consequences are not as important as the extra-worldly or the next-worldly consequences? Well, that's that's a really good question. But I, 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 uh, to, to get back to the previous thing first, I, I would say that a science teacher is free to give that student an F because pointing to the Bible and saying revelation equals science is not true. And, the, you know, we have a textbook. We have, we have the science has, you know, the word science has a meaning. And uh, I think the student could say that. Uh, but I think I think that the professor would be absolutely right to give the student an F for that because revelation is not the same thing as science. Well, then to um, look at that at that second part of the question, and I agree with you that revelation is not the same as science. But then to look for those for whom the 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 next world consequence will my child's soul be saved in the life to come? If that's the paramount question, and then they say, well, in, or, in, in order for their soul to be saved, they have to give the right answers when they are tested, and so you're being tested here, and they. I mean, I, I guess part of part of the difficulty is it becomes almost uh, a moment of implied martyrdom. Well, you're going to give me an F for giving this answer, but this answer is the truth, and therefore I'm witnessing to the truth. How do we begin to penetrate that that mindset? I guess is my question to you. Good grief! You know, my answer's got to be the same as I as I gave you a moment ago, and and this is not an answer really. But I'm not a legal expert in any. I don't know a single thing about it, to be honest with you, but. My question is, how do you deal with it, not in a legal framework, but in an intellectual or personal framework? And, I've, and, and for me, the answer is to go back to the beginning and say, this person, when I, when I hear things, I'll tell you this, David, when I hear things like that about the other, you know, the next world, the important world, and we, you know, just let this one burn because we gotta, we got to hasten Armageddon, you know, and just get on to the next real world, uh, that to me is just solid. 100% fear is what I hear when I hear that. Fear of the world. And that, that's a real pastoral theological block. And so I think of it that way. So from a personal point of view, I go back to looking at that person like, like a person. From a legal point of view, uh, I'm way under, way over my head. Understood. And what I love about that is you draw it right back to the relational aspect. You're, you're not going to try and argue the points of information so much as you're going to try pastorally to begin to engage the person at their point of fear. That to right. me is, is, a, is a brilliant response because, again, it resets the terms of the conversation from this adversarial macho sort of approach right. to a, an approach that really cares about the life and wholeness and integrity, to use your word, of the other person. Right. And, th- and, that's, and this comes back to, I had a pastor, beloved pastor, a number of years ago, and we were talking about the LGBTQ issue, and he said, you know, I mean, he, he was on that train long before most people that I ever knew. And he said, you know, Paul, when you have a question like LGBTQ acceptance, you know, full inclusion, this sort of thing, you have to start with the person standing in front of you and not with a principle, not with some abstract principle. You have to start with the person in front of you. And that really stuck with me. And I think that, that it was one of the aha moments in my life. 
And I struggle with that because I, I live in my head so much. It's a struggle for me to get out of my head and to recognize the person in front of me and honor the person in front of me. But that's what I try to do. Well, and to bring this back to your recent book, Love and Quasars, you engage at one point the religious personage. I don't quite know how to describe him. He's a, he's a, he's a cultural force of nature, Ken Ham. And one of the things... <laughs> One of the things that you talk about uh, about Ken Ham is that Ken Ham accepts some of the the conclusions of nuclear physics, some of the conclusions of other scientific inquiry, but he rejects others. And I think right. part of what we're getting at is the mistaken notion that if you simply accept this part and this part that works for you, you can throw away the rest. How would you right. how would you respond to someone like Ken Ham who says, well, I, I believe in nuclear physics, but I don't believe in an old creation. I believe that the Earth is 6,000 years old. How do you begin to reconcile well, when someone wants to pick and choose like that? My quick sort of, uh, you know, tweetable response would be that he doesn't really believe in nuclear physics, even though he says he does, if he says that, because... The age of the Earth, and therefore the age of the cosmos, is directly related to nuclear physics. The way we, one of the several ways that we that we sort of clock the age of the Earth is by using nuclear physics to do that. And the thing that is is I think lost perhaps on folks like Ken Ham is it's, is that, is that when you learn science, right? You go into a chemistry classroom, then you go into a physics classroom, then a then a cell biology classroom. And it is in a math classroom, and so you think that all these disciplines are separate. But I tell you, my students never get so excited as when they see something in physics that overlaps smoothly with something they learned in chemistry. They're like, oh my God, it's all the same thing. I say, yes, it's all the same thing. Science is one unified body of knowledge. Now, it's not perfect. It's not complete. It's always growing. It's always changing. There's always tensions in certain places, but it's all connected, and you can't just rip out certain parts of it and leave the other parts unchanged. So you can't throw away the age of the Earth and keep nuclear physics, because they're connected. But you could say the same thing, couldn't you, about aspects of Christian theology? You can't pick and choose an atonement model and plug it into a notion of forgiveness and, and just mix and match to suit your, your instincts. There are, there are lines of development, and if you begin sort of ripping one thing out and trying to paste it onto another theological worldview, you're going to start to get inconsistencies and you're going to lack integrity within that system, aren't you? That is true in a certain limit, but I think that oftentimes the creationists like Ham sort of see theology in the same way that they would view science, as that theology must be completely laid out flat and neat and all and sort of a complete self-consistent, clean data set. That that's, how, that's how faith operates, is based on these these tightly interlocked, everything's tightly interlocked. So two things to say. One is that science is not quite as, as tightly locked up as I say. It's not an absolute, absolutely rigid system. And also theology has flexibilities in it and uh, fluidity in it, I think, that exists. Uh, and it's more, more dominant. It's, it's, it's not just a bunch of concepts that lock together. And I don't want to do disservice to either faith or science when I say this, but the two are just not the same. And so applying laws, rules that you might apply to science, to faith, doesn't always uh, pay off. A lot of times it can result in a faith that's, that's more rigid even than science is. That's what ends up happening in a case like Ham, is that they want their faith to be like, you know, rigid like science, but what they end up with is something that's 
a faith that's even more rigid and more inflexible and flatter and less interesting than science. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Paul Wallace about his recent book, Love and Quasars, An Astrophysicist Reconciles Faith and Science. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road podcast. It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a front-lines, on-the-ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show, and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Paul Wallace about his recent book, Love and Quasars, An Astrophysicist Reconciles Faith and Science. Well, earlier in the conversation, we talked about the existential fear that Tycho Brahe had when he did the math and realized that the vast distances between the Earth and the stars indicated a different kind of connection to the relationship of God to creation than he was willing to accept. And in when you deal with that segment, you draw back into the book of Job and Job's response when God basically says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the heavens? And when you made that move in this, in this new book, Love and Quasars, it made me think that we're tying back into what you were talking about in that magnificent book that we, that we discussed before, Stars Beneath Us, because you really meditate on Job and Job's responses in that first book, and you're bringing some of that back into the conversation here. So for, right. for listeners that may be unfamiliar, unfamiliar with that story, remind us about what's going on with Job and how Job's response is important to us today. Well, Job, uh, of course, is a book from the Bible, and Job experiences, he, he, he's a man who has, who has it all, thoroughly, truly a good man through and through, and he loses everything except for his own life, loses his family, loses his wealth, loses his health, loses his social status, and he's pretty angry at God about this. He's a judge, so he knows he's not getting any justice, and he uh, basically uh, is angry at God. Uh, and angry is actually an understatement. Uh, he gets right up to the edge of the cliff of blasphemy a number of times, making his friends very nervous in the book. But in the end of the book, uh, God responds to Job, and it's not a story, and it's not a response that has anything to do directly with justice. God doesn't, you know, diagram justice for Job or or sort of provide Job some theory of why people suffer. All God did was show Job creation, show Job the cosmos, and took Job on a tour of a universe and a cosmos that that was very strange. It wasn't sort of a nice, friendly little tour. It was a very uh, mind-bending, existentially riveting tour that God takes Job on and shows Job the entire cosmos. And at the end of this tour that God takes uh, Job on, you know, he sees the stars, he sees the earth, he sees the ocean, he sees animals, he sees, you know, these sort of cosmic beasts at the edge of creation. He sees the whole thing. And at the end of it, Job is satisfied somehow. Somehow this vision of creation, this vision of a world 
of a universe that's much bigger and stranger, more violent, darker, but also more brilliant and beautiful than he ever could have imagined, somehow that works for Job, and he is satisfied. He no longer is worried about his case anymore. So it really reorients Job in a way that is enlightening and, uh, and liberating and life-giving for Job. Well, the same sort of thing happens to Tycho, but Tycho is considering a universe that's far stranger and more mysterious than he can imagine, right? He, he says, you know, Copernicus is, is offering up a vision of the universe here, which is very unsettling, very frightening. Not sure I could live with it, So, but the difference in Tycho's response couldn't be greater. Tycho rejects that model of the universe, in a sense because he rejected a larger, stranger God than he could have imagined. Whereas in Job's case, Job embraced the universe God showed him. Job embraced, and in so doing, embraced God himself. Job embraced God by embracing the cosmos that God showed him. Tycho, on the other hand, rejected the cosmos that Copernicus gave to him. And he did so because the cosmos threatened his idea of God. So it's an interesting pair, those two, Job and Tycho. What I love about that is how it ties together this image that you give us at the beginning of your book, Love and Quasars, where you're in the car traveling across the Mississippi River, you see the sunset, and you remark as a child, that is the glory of God. And then later in Love and Quasars, you come back to a similar moment of a sunset, and you now, as an astrophysicist, understand the mechanisms of that sunset so much more deeply than you did as a child. And yet, it seems to me, if I'm reading your book correctly, that you, after this journey of study and this journey of faith, you now can look at that sunset, even knowing what you know about all the mechanics and the fact that the sun is not where we see it and all of that, you can still affirm this is the glory of God. And it, that seems to me yeah. to be very similar to the, the journey that you've just told us about that Job was on. Am I, am I reading that parallel correctly? Well, it may be, yeah, because when I look at the sunset now, I've got all these things in my mind not just, you know, the sun sitting there, but I've got the whole, you know, I, I tend to connect up to the whole cosmos very quickly, so that when I see the sunset, I'm put in mind of, you know, stellar evolution. I'm put in mind of, you know, the the nuclear reactions going on inside the sun and in other stars, and it connects to the whole universe to me. So, yeah, when I see the sunset now, I see everything. Then this is just sort of a natural thing that happens in my mind. I just sort of see everything, and it's liberating for me. And it basically takes my idea of God that I had as a child and blows it up to a size and to a that I can't even conceive of. It, it, God is a larger, stranger thing, a larger, stranger personality, you know, than we ever could have that I ever could have imagined as a child. And it's a relief to me, and it, it's lovely. Well. When we look at the political landscape, what we see is that there is a real kind of war on a certain kind of scientific knowledge, and it's a war on scientific knowledge oftentimes in the name of a certain understanding of faith. And this this tension that you're talking about in your book, Love and Quasars, is writ large over our cultural landscape, and it's an antagonistic tension. So given that that is such a prevalent reality right now, I wonder as we're coming to a close in our conversation, what it is, Paul Wallace, that keeps you hopeful in these days? Keeping, uh, what, what makes me hopeful these days is keeping in touch with nature. I've been doing more small-scale 
you know, as a, as a scientist, I, I did nuclear physics, very, the science is a very tiny on a large scale. I did, um, you know, astrophysics. But these days I, I get my, my sustenance, my, my spiritual hope comes from, frankly, taking walks in the woods and learning about what I find when I go there. That gives me, you know, I don't go to the woods to solve my problems. What I do is I go to the woods to, to remember who I am and what the world is. Uh, you know, it's God's creation. I'm God's child, and I go there to remember that. And when I come back out of the woods, these divisions and so forth that I that, that exist not only in our in our nation, but inside myself, seem a little bit less scary. So again, it's it's creation to the rescue, but it's sort of a medium sized kind of uh, smaller scale thing that I'm finding hope in these days. Well, Paul Wallace, when you were last on the show, I remarked that your book, Stars Beneath Us, simply took my breath away. You're such a good writer. And here you've, you've done it again with your book, Love and Quasars, in dealing with these huge questions, these eternal questions of science and faith. You have managed to bring it, just as you just said, to a human scale and to make it both incredibly intricately constructed, but yet incredibly clear and accessible. I just want to say how much I enjoyed the book. I know that my listeners will enjoy the book. And thank you so much for taking time today to talk to us about it. Thank you for having me, David. It was a pleasure. We've been speaking today with Paul Things Wallace, Not Seen is produced by Sandars Media, LLC. He teaches We're distributed nationally by PRS, the public radio exchange. He holds a PhD Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.